So Holy Spirit, we know that you are here, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word, help us to be changed by it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good to see all of you, and welcome those of you who are watching on the podcast. Glad you're all here. I want to start with a question. How many of you, when you look at our culture, movies, attitudes, trends, how many of you, when you look at that, think, man, there is nothing wrong with this culture. It is perfect. Can I see your hands? Awesome. This sermon then is going to apply to all of you. And if any of you thought about raising your hand to that question, there will be prayer ministers after the service (laughs) that you may be healed. Because I think even if you're not a Christian, it is easy to look at our culture, trends, attitudes, all kinds of stuff, and just kind of get discouraged. And for those of us who take on the name of Jesus, it's really easy to feel as an exile, like an exile in a culture that increasingly mocks and dislikes us. Now, some of that is deserved some, because Christians have done some pretty stupid and silly things over the years, but just, we've just got this bad PR, which is one of the reasons we're doing this sermon series about how to thrive in exile. Whether that's exile as sort of personal experience of, of job problem or health or relationship issue, or corporately as Christians in a post-Christian culture. I'm always sort of interested in how pastors are depicted in movies and TV, and you may not be sensitive to this, not being a pastor, but I'm very aware of it. I mean, we're either, on the one hand, we're sort of this Ned Flanders, self-righteous, but secretly corrupt hypocrites, or we're total wimps. That's so discouraging if you're a pastor. You don't want to tell people that that's what you do. The media is very hard on Christians, pastors, Christians in general. Now, I want to say I have found that the Seattle media is actually pretty gracious and pretty fair. But nationally, not so much. It seems to me that the media just loves to find the dumbest Christian in America and out of a 20-minute interview finds the 90 dumbest seconds from the dumbest Christian in America, and that's what gets on the air. And what really bugs me about that is how often the media has interviewed me. Like, what does that say about me? Why do they want to keep talking to me, right? It's just very discouraging. And the problem is when it comes to dumb things that Christians say, there's just a whole smorgasbord of options for the media to choose from. Right? No lack there. But even still in that, it just sort of feels like our image is lopsided and unfair. And it kind of frustrates me, and maybe it frustrates you. So just, just let me, just for a few minutes here, can I just vent? Okay, I probably shouldn't do it. It's probably sin. But, you know, maybe it'll be cathartic because it just drives me nuts. Like on Facebook or in the media, I see lots of stories about the most outrageous things some Christian has just done, but virtual silence on the many good things that Christians do, or the many intelligent things that really smart Christians say. Or people bring up ancient history. I got a lot of this when I was teaching. Crusades. What about the Crusades? Oh, please, give me a break. Right? First off, Christians did not do the Crusades. That was done by the institutional church, which is not the same thing as real Christ followers, in cooperation with kings seeking military glory to bolster their political standing at home. Meanwhile, true Christ followers protested the Crusades, like St. Francis, who went on a crusade not to fight, but to, but to help the wounded, including Muslims. And besides, it was a thousand years ago. Update your argument. Right? And, and let me just keep going just a little bit, because I feel like I'm on a roll, and this is really good for me, so I don't know if it's good for you, but just let me go a little bit further, because the thing that just drives me crazy is, 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 is how predictable all the arguments are. I mean, what makes a great novel... What makes a great movie is it's unique. It's not cliche. But so much of what gets said about Christians is just cliche caricature in spite of the fact that it always gets said as though it's the most radical avant-garde thing ever. 
Yeah, 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 I know. We're dumb. We're Neanderthals. We're hypocrites. We only care about money and power. We don't care about poor or hurting people. Church people are uptight prudes who want everyone else to be as miserable as they are. And yes, some Christians are like that, but many are not. And when I hear that narrative, everything in me just wants to say, hmm, you picked that up at Woodstock, did you? Because it's just, oh, so 1968. I've been there, done that, heard it. You know, you're not as original and radical as you thought you were. Why didn't you come up with an idea that wasn't formulated during the Johnson administration? Or better yet, how about you and I have a conversation so that I can make intellectual jelly out of you because you, my friend, are in serious need of clicking the refresh button on your brain. Wow, that felt good. Ah, oh, it just feels so good to get that off my chest, doesn't it? Feels good. And yet, something tells me that's not what Jesus would do. What do you think? Like, darn it. Come on, Jesus, why can't we do that? It feels so good. And yet, and yet, those of us who take on the name of Jesus are called to something higher and something nobler. And yeah, there's a place to vent and all of that, but when we go out there, we're called to a higher way of living rather than, rather than just sort of venting and shouting at our culture or becoming exactly like our culture, on the other hand. As always, Jesus offers this none-of-the-above third-way alternative, which I'll get to in a minute. But first, some theology, because I think it's helpful to know that others have come before us and figured some of this stuff out. So, way, way back in the 5th century, St. Augustine wrote a book called City of God. And in it, he said there are two cities. One is the city of humans based on striving and using the other person to get what you want and using money, sex, and power for personal gain. The other is the city of God, made up of folks who have experienced God's love and, and therefore try to bless other people in response to that, try to, try to live with more joy and use sex, money, and power in life-giving and affirming ways. And the city of God is not a geographical place. It's not a future thing, it's a state of mind. It's a way of living. And within every human city are citizens of the city of God living inside human cities. And Augustine used the word city on purpose. Because you see, throughout Scripture, God has a plan, strategic plan for cities. Jerusalem, Rome, Corinth, Babylon. Because what happens in cities affects the rest of the country. The Bible starts in the Garden of Eden. Right? In, in a garden, but, but it ends in a city. At the end of Revelation, it says this, Behold, I saw the new Jerusalem. That's a city coming down out of the sky from God. Notice it doesn't say, Behold, I saw a suburb coming down out of the sky from God. Because God would never make a suburb, right? So that's just, there's no suburbs in heaven. That is a biblical teaching to which you can say amen. <laughs> and in our country, sociologists have identified what they call bellwether cities that set the trend for the rest of the country. And they are L.A., San Francisco, Boston, New York, and you can guess the last one. You're living in it. Seattle, right? As go those cities, so goes the rest of the country. So just be glad that Vegas is not on that list. <laughs> and the New Testament frequently refers to Christians as exiles. Only as I said last week, we don't like that word. We like happy words. So last week I gave you the word pioneer. This week, the happy word for exile is ambassadors. We are ambassadors from another kingdom, another city, who carry the culture, who carry the way of life of the city of God wherever we go. I know a woman who calls her house the embassy, just a reminder of this fact. When someone calls her, what are you doing today? She says, oh, I'm cleaning the embassy, which sounds way better than I'm cleaning the bathroom, right? I mean, that's just way better. But it reminds her, I am an ambassador from a different culture. 
Okay, that's Augustine. Fast forward to the 20th century. A guy named H. Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture about how should Christians interact with culture. And he gives a bunch of paradigms. I'll just give a few. One is Christ against culture. That Christians have to withdraw from the culture because everything about it is antithetical to Jesus. Monasteries are an example of that. You see it today in certain parts of Christian subculture where you only have Christian friends and Christian bumper stickers and only Christian music and Christian napkin holders and toothbrushes and all kinds of stuff, right? And there's some good reasons to do some of that. But if we separate from culture too much, then how do we ever engage and affect it? Plus, we can't completely isolate ourselves anyway. I mean, you can't, for instance, bubble wrap your kids and hope the culture never gets to them because, boy, it is going to get to them. So it's an illusion. And on top of all of that, this view kind of leads some folks to become belligerent and arguing and yelling at the culture all the, help, all, all the time. And arguing just doesn't help. On Super Bowl Sunday in February, a friend of mine, who's a huge Broncos fan, posted on my Facebook page a passage out of Leviticus in the Bible that listed all the birds that the Israelites were not supposed to eat because they were unclean, and hawks was on that list. <laughs> and so he underlined hawks. So I posted back, Good thing crow's not on that list because that's what you're going to be eating. Smackdown. <laughs> Boom. I was so proud of myself. I thought that was an awesome comeback. He didn't respond. I think he's waiting for an opportune time to get revenge, which is why the Seahawks are going to win today so that he can't get me back. See, that's the problem with arguing. My friend and I are fine, by the way. Just a little friendly arguing. Real arguing, though, doesn't do any good. Just makes people want to argue right back. So the second, a second paradigm... Niebuhr talked about is the Christ of culture, kind of the opposite. Jesus represents the absolute best of civilization, so we can embrace the best of culture. And again, there's some truth to that. But it can also lead to accommodationism, where we just slap Jesus on everything in our culture and call it good. So, for instance, the idea that the bigger the church is, the better it is. Okay, that is just pure American capitalism. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just not sure that's how God measures a church. A third paradigm that Niebuhr offers is Christ the transformer of culture. The incarnation means that in Jesus, God himself became flesh and in the process redeemed flesh and the whole material world. And he stepped into, not away from culture, to transform it. Now, we don't get a perfect culture till he returns, but we get bits and pieces of God's culture here and now. So we're called to transform culture by live, stepping into it and living a way that is so refreshing, others are attracted to it and that gradually begins to shift the culture. People see how we relate to others, how we have joy, how we gradually get free of stress and striving and find our worth in God's love rather than our achievements. And this is attractive to people and it changes the culture over time. And this is the third way option that I think Jesus invites us into. We don't just assimilate to the culture. But neither do we yell and scream at the culture. Jesus instead gives us three images, salt, light, and yeast. He says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And then in another place, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And the you there is plural, right? Y'all. All y'all, use guys, bell press, y'all are the light, the salt of the earth. Salt, light, yeast. Let me make a few comments about those images, and I'm not going to have three points, one for each, because that would be cliche. I'm just going to do some random comments that hopefully will make you go, hmm, at least one of them will make you go, hmm. 
In fact, I'm not sure you're still all with me after that theology, so could you just practice? Could you just say hmm out loud right now? <laughs> very good. Presbyterian amen. Thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate it. The thing about salt, light, and yeast is they go everywhere. Light goes to every part of the room. Salt and yeast, every part of the food. It's the same with us. God's strategy is to scatter us everywhere in King County, schools, offices, neighborhoods, to be salt, light, yeast there, to bring flavor, light, to make the whole culture rise by how we live. See, we are exiles with a purpose. It's a strategy of engagement and blessing rather than confrontation and power. And if you think about salt in particular, it does a couple of things. Salt, for instance, heals. In ancient times, people used it to clean out wounds. So there's a Christian woman I know of who adopts crack babies as a way of helping poor women who have unwanted pregnancies. She doesn't lecture them. She just gives them an option. See, that's what salt does. It doesn't call attention to itself. It silently blends in and preserves and heals. Another thing salt does is it flavors. Another way to translate this verse might be, you are the salsa of the earth. Right? You're supposed to spice life up by how we live. And wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if Christians were known as the most joyful people around and that if you wanted to cheer up, the one place you would absolutely go is to church because everyone's just so joyful there? I mean, what if the happiest place on earth wasn't Disneyland but Bell Press? I mean, like, wouldn't that be awesome? All of the joy without the lines and we will never sing. It's a small world. <laughs> Promise you, we will not sing that song here. A young adult I know built a huge raft. It's more like a floating platform a few summers ago that he'd take out to the lake on a lot of the evenings. And he'd invite his neighbors and his friends. They put a barbecue on this raft. They did gladiator games to see who could push each other off the raft the most. They had a couch on the raft that they would do these flips off of into the lake. Well, at the end of the summer, he said to me, I think I wasted my summer. All I did was I had a bunch of fun. I didn't do anything for the kingdom. I didn't do anything holy. And I said, oh, there's so many things wrong with that theologically. I don't even know where to start. I, give me a minute so I can sort them into categories. Like, what makes you think that's not holy? You, you created community and fun. I mean, that's important work. Some of those young adults found the raft more fun than getting drunk in some bar, throwing up and waking up with a hangover the next day. Weird, but they liked the raft better than that. He was the salsa of the earth. He gave life flavor. Two more things salt does. It makes you thirsty. When Jesus says to let others see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, another way to translate that verse is so that they will form a right opinion about God. Jesus invites us to live in such a way that others form a right opinion about God and get thirsty for him. And then one last thing salt does is it melts ice. And we change culture when we live in a way that melts hearts that are cold and hard toward God. Last October, Eastside Academy, the the Christian alternative high school that meets in our church, held their auction. And some of these students, as you know, come from very difficult backgrounds, sometimes even homelessness. And there's a campus here and a campus at Overlake Christian where my good friend Mike Howerton is, is pastor. And there's a portion of the auction that's called Fund a Need where you don't buy anything, you just, you just give to help these kids. And before that section, we heard some brief testimonies from the kids about how the Christian environment of high love, and some of these kids have never felt loved in their life, how that love coupled with accountability and Jesus has really changed their life. One young man put it this way, I used to be a hopeless dope fiend, but now I'm a dopeless hope fiend. Isn't that beautiful? I just think that's, I mean, that's what Jesus can do. I mean, it's, I mean former English major, man, that's good use of language. But... <laughs> But what a great story, right? 
Well, we heard all that, and then those of you who were there, many of you were there, gave $400,000 just in that one section of the auction alone in this frenzy of joyful giving. And after that, I stepped out of the room with Mike just for a minute, and some of the students were, were there in the hallway, and some of them were crying, and they were saying things I like, just didn't know that there were that many people that cared. And this is awesome. One girl was crying. She said, I'm going to make every one of those awesome people in those rooms a pan of muffins for every one of them. That's just a ton of muffins, right? See, it just feels good to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, which is one really good reason you should go to EA's auction coming up in a few weeks. You can sign up in the, in the lobby. It just feels good. And we know that people's lives are different because of us. It matters that we were born. And we change. We become change agents. We become change agents in our culture. Two weeks ago, I quoted a writer named Andy Crouch who says that the only way to change culture is not by yelling at it. only way to change culture is to make more of it, to make better culture, more attractive culture, more interesting culture. And he uses this analogy of how he really likes to make chili, but his kids hate chili and they always complain. And he says, but I don't care. I like to make chili. And he says, but there is one thing they could do to change the culinary culture of the family. I mean, they, they can protest, but he says, I don't care. Or they could become more sophisticated in their critiques, noting how chili with green peppers especially violates the universal principle that green and red things should not be eaten together and all of that. But he says, I don't care, that wouldn't work. But there is one thing that they could do to change the chili culture of the family. What is the one thing they could do to change it? They could cook dinner. He says, if I came home and they'd cook dinner, I would happily eat it, even if it wasn't chili. See, the only way to change culture is not to argue with it or have a, a better, sophisticated critique of it. It's to make new and better culture. Not that there aren't times that we have to call out sin and brokenness and injustice. Absolutely, sometimes we have to call that out. Civil rights movement, which came out of the churches, great example of that. But even there, it was the dignity and courage of Rosa Parks, the compassion of Martin Luther King, who would talk about how much compassion he had even for the racists that were persecuting him. King and Parks and so many others changed our culture by living out a different culture that was just way more compelling. The guy who built that raft made a new culture that some young adults found way more interesting than the whole bar scene. See, most of us live as thermometers, simply registering the cultural temperature around us. Jesus invites us to live as thermostats that change the cultural temperature around us. And we're do you do that as individuals, so many of you do that in so many ways. We're doing that collectively as a church alongside other churches. As you know, Jubilee Reach, a Christian organization that this church started, runs after-school programs in sports and robotics and music and all kinds of things. Kids who participate in them see their test scores go up two grade levels. Gang activity disappears almost completely. Now, they know we're Christians. We don't push our faith. They know. We just don't push it on them. We just simply show Jesus by living a different culture. And so we've been invited into the public schools. And I know you've heard me say this before, but I do not want us as a church to grow numb to the fact that this is an, an actual miracle in our midst, right? You're not invited into the public. Christians aren't invited into public schools, especially here. Like we're not in Alabama, guys, right? This is not the Bible Belt. This is a miracle. And it's changing relationships between church and government and schools, changing culture by making more of it. This works on big scale, and it also works on a small scale. You can change the culture, the atmosphere, in your, in your office, in your school, in your neighborhood. So here's your homework. Your homework is this week, change some culture by making more of it. 
You do that in your school or your office when you elevate the conversation from gossip to something that's kind of more positive. Not by shaming or criticizing the gossipers, but just changing the subject to something more interesting. Or by having lunch with that person that everyone else seems to shun. Or simply by how you care for someone around you in a way that is different. I want to end with a video clip that's gone a bit viral. Some of you have, may have seen this before. It's of a 12-year-old boy who gets a foul ball at a Red Sox game. Watch what he does with it. Chop foul outside a third. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh, somebody's made a friend. Look at the, look at the little girl looking at him now. I know when he gives her the baseball. I mean, that's what's just very nice generous. Job. And look, look at her face. The mom is really happy, too. Yeah, very impressed by the young man. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. Uh, did you notice how that just changed the whole atmosphere around him? Just instantly changed the culture around him. Later on, they interviewed him. And it, you know, they, it turns out he did not know that little girl at all, never met her in his life, nor did his mom tell him to do that. So they said, well, why did you do that? And he said, well, it just seemed like the right thing to do to give someone a good day. Right? Now, now, the culture around him would certainly have said, just keep that ball. You got it fair and square. But he engaged the culture. He was salt, light, yeast, and he made more culture. Just in the little bit around him, a culture that gives and doesn't take, a culture that spreads joy. The whole atmosphere changed, and all those smiles. Look at all those smiles. And Lord knows the Red Sox need something to smile about this season. <laughs> right? Like, and it wasn't going to be the game, right? So they just had, I mean, that, you know, there it is. Where there was no community, now there's community. Where there was no connection, now there's connection. Not bad for a 12-year-old kid, even if he is a Red Sox fan. And it looks to me like he's not miserable. Right, look at that grin. Like, this is the grin of someone who knows the power he has, power to bless, power to change the culture, even if it's just a few square feet around him, power to turn someone's day from fine to better. That's a lot of power. And it feels so much better to light a candle than yell at the darkness. And you know what else I think that grin says? That is the grin of a 12-year-old boy on the brink of adolescence thinking, am I smooth with the women or what? <laughs> Guess who all the girls are going to want to go to prom with in a couple of years, and don't he know it, right? Like that grin says, look out, ladies, here I come. <laughs> Belprez, Belprez, we can change the culture. We can change the culture. It's happened before. You know, the early Christians lived in such a way that was so attractive that after a while, the gladiator games and the crucifixions and all the things the Romans used to love to do just didn't seem that cool anymore. Belprez, we can change the culture. See, Jesus didn't start a government. Government can be super helpful, but he didn't start a government because he knew that top-down power can't change a human heart. And he didn't start a school as important as education is because he knew that our real problem is not that we don't know enough or that we're not smart enough. And he didn't leave an institution. He left a community of people who are no better than everyone else, but who have experienced Jesus loving them just the way they are and not as they should be, and they want to give that away. And he invites us to live as exiles, as ambassadors from a different city, carrying with us the way of life of the city of God wherever we go. See, we've got a choice. We can rant and rave and rail at the culture, which feels good, it does, but after time, it just leaves us sad, bitter, and angry. Plus, there's enough of that in our culture anyway, isn't there? I mean, plenty of that, no need to add to that. Or we can offer something refreshingly different, the Jesus way, 
the way of engagement and blessing that leads to life and joy and a transformed world. And it may take a generation, but we see progress along the way as we go. As office by office, school by school, neighborhood by neighborhood, we act as salt, light, and yeast. So, Bill Prez, what do you say? Let's get out there and change the culture. Only the way, only way you can change the culture is to make more of it. So let's get out there and start changing the culture. Go make some really cool, amazing culture all week long, wherever God has placed you. So, Jesus, thank you. You could do this without us. You don't need us. But somehow you want to do it with us, Lord. Thank you. That feels like friendship. So Jesus, empower us to be change agents wherever you've placed us, carrying with us your way of life. Lord, help us to live that individually. Help us to give that away so that the world will know that you are the risen Lord and we'll give you all the glory. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.